Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Bob Moore, serial entrepreneur and the co-founder and CEO of Crossbeam. In this episode, Bob shared his experience on how his company's churn rate affected the acquisition value, how partnerships can be a powerful tool to fight churn, and why he decided to build Crossbeam. We also discussed why Bob considered RJ Metrics' exit as a $2.6 billion fail, how better product positioning helped him decrease churn, and how a change in your customer mindset can affect your product market fit. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Now enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Hello. Great to be here. Thanks. It's, it's excellent to have you on board. Uh, I noticed a really interesting post that you put up on Twitter, which I'd recommend everybody go check out uh, around RJ Metrics and a mistake that you believe you made at the time. But for the listeners, Bob is the co-founder and CEO now of Crossbeam. Crossbeam is a collaborative data platform that helps companies build more valuable partnerships. They act as an escrow service for data, allowing companies to find overlapping customers and prospects with their partners while keeping the rest of their data private and secure. Prior to Cosbeam, Bob was also the CEO and co-founder of RJ Metrics, which was acquired by Magento in 2016 and is now a part of the Adobe Commerce Cloud, where he continued on as head of Magento Business Intelligence for a while before spinning out a new company called Stitch as part of the deal. Stitch was then later acquired by Talend in November 2018. So my first question for you, Bob, is churn and retention must have been a central focus for you throughout your various ventures. How important was churn during the acquisition discussions? Oh, it was fundamentally important. Um, I, I would say that churn, especially in the case of RJ Metrics, was probably one of the most focused on topics uh, at, at the board strategic level, all the way down to the day-to-day tactical level throughout pretty much the entire life of the company. Um, and it was probably one of the, the larger things that throttled the growth of that business uh, over the years. Um, and in the case of Stitch, it was almost the opposite, uh, where we had a super sticky product where revenue very naturally had a, a growth path um, through people's usage of the product. And, you know, we had, we had negative churn throughout the life of that business. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of the lifeblood of, of doing this work is, is work in and around retention and churn. 
Yeah, and maybe you want to just give us a quick overview of RJ Metrics and Stitch and why you think uh, the two differed when it came to churn and retention. Yeah, so RJ Metrics was a data analytics platform we sold mostly to e-commerce companies. So we would help those companies identify things like customer lifetime value, conduct cohort analysis, really basically figure out who their most valuable customers are and how to get more customers like them. Um, and RJ was, we sold into marketing departments and we were very much kind of your, your one-stop shop for analytics. So we'd plug into your shopping cart and then, um, you know, do our, our number crunching and spit out these dashboards that would give you uh, kind of some best practices analytics and then maybe some more pointed analysis around potential action items and things like that. Um, so very much a, you know, used by people in the go-to-market organization kind of dependent upon or downstream from your shopping cart or transactional data. Um, and Stitch was much more like a data infrastructure product. So we helped people in their journey to answer a lot of the same questions, but instead of being a one-stop shop or this big monolithic platform that kind of did it all, we basically just helped connect tools to each other. So for example, you could use Stitch to pull data out of your Magento shopping cart and drop it into your uh, Amazon Web Services, Amazon Redshift data warehouse. Um, and Stitch would be very good at making sure that data got synced on a regular basis, that it was always accurate, that it was structured the way you want, that you know, if either side's APIs changed, we would, we would make sure that that got addressed very rapidly. Kind of saved you the trouble of building little scripts to move data around or data pipelines. Um, but we didn't actually do the analysis. We left that to companies uh, that we were partnered with, like, uh, like Looker and, uh, and the like. So um, basically, the big difference, if you really dial it back and you know, forget the vertical we're in and everything, is that RJ Metrics was um, a giant... Uh, multifaceted software product that solved a lot of problems in one for the purpose of giving you a very specific output, whereas Stitch participated in a large ecosystem of products uh, and helped tie those products together to get basically the same output, but giving customers a lot more control over the tools they use for each step of the job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as well. And by the sounds of it, one sounds like very user-facing, front-facing when it comes to RJ metrics, and then uh, Stitch is more sort of like quietly working in the back end, uh, and it's almost like maybe a set and forget sort of thing. Like once you've done it, you can relax about it as opposed to something that you're constantly going. Is that correct? Or Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, I, you know, I think I said in that blog post, um, you know, Stitch was all ecosystem, no glory, right? I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we were in the plumbing business uh, with that company. Yeah, but uh, when you say no glory, I think one of the greatest things I found actually with Stitch was uh, how incredible the SEO work was. Um, uh, oh, yeah. At Hot, yeah, at Hotjar, like I'm the business intelligence uh, team busy building it out for them. And every time I would search sort of a, a specific topic, like there would be a Stitch post for it or there'd be a Stitch uh, a link explaining how to get it done, but then also like hinting towards it, Stitch also does this for you. So uh, I think there was, you say no glory, but you definitely came up okay. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fun business for that stuff because we were able to, because the nature of the business was connecting one system to another, every single permutation of any two systems was kind of its own unique topic you could talk about. So yeah. you know, like the long tail search dictionary for that business was enormous. And that just gave us the opportunity to build probably more content marketing assets than at any other company I've been at. 
Yeah, super interesting. Uh, maybe even something I want to reach, uh, put, like push on at the end of the show as well. Just something for us to think about. That. Um, so then you, you went on now and you founded Crossbeam uh, as well. Um, did sort of like your experience when it came to trend and retention from both these previous companies sort of motivate you in any way to founding Crossbeam? Like had, did that have any influence on what you're building today? Yeah, kind of on two levels. Um, One, because I wanted to obviously create a product that had that stickiness and that value growth like we saw at Stitch. Um, And I think that was a big input to choosing, you know, which idea to work on and and ultimately landing on Crossbeam. But then there was almost this other level to it, like a meta level where Crossbeam is actually a product that by using it also helps companies increase the stickiness of their products and make those products more valuable. Um, And it does that by basically helping create a go-to-market layer, which includes retention and account management on top of all these technology integrations that everybody is building. Um, You know, when you build a, a tech integration or you open up an API to your platform, you end up basically opening yourself up to that enormous partnership ecosystem that exists out there, especially we see this in in B2B SaaS right now. Um, But what happens in a lot of companies is that that's very much a product or a technology decision. And the actual, the sales teams, the retention teams don't think of that as an opportunity to actually directly drive more deals or increase retention or create more value uh, that might allow for account expansion or or growing ACV. But in reality, it's probably one of the most powerful and underutilized weapons at the disposals of those teams. They just don't have the data and the, basically the the systems to run and scale all those operations. So what Crossbeam does is allows you to work with your partner companies where you do have these tech integrations and other partnerships and systematically and scalably identify when, for example, your sales pipelines overlap, um, or when maybe your target account list overlaps with the customer list of one of your close partners. Um, And by identifying these things in a safe, secure, trusted environment, where you know that the rest of your data is kept completely private, you can actually build systems and actions around these overlaps that let you make sure that you never miss an opportunity to upsell a tech integration or you never make the wrong decision about what to hook into your products next in terms of where you make that, uh, that integration investment. Um, or you never miss a deal where your sales reps and the reps from a company that you're close with could be collaborating and helping each other win. Um, and that's at the core of all of that is create more value, make your products more sticky, all as a result of collaboration through through partner ecosystems. And I think that's tied directly into churn and account expansion. It's, it's a big part of that story. Yeah, uh, that's super interesting as well. Like just thinking about the different use cases uh, of having that knowledge and having those interesting mentions sort of like retention team, customer success, potentially having that knowledge, being able to put together webinars and training sessions. And uh, I think the use cases become very, very interesting. The the topic of partnerships itself hasn't really come up much on the show, but I do believe it is a very, very valuable uh, channel and a good way to sort of make your product more sticky and uh, be sort of sort of embed yourself further into the the user's workflow. Do you want to just walk us through like some of the things you see when it comes to general retention and how powerful partnerships can be in integrations? Yeah, I think when you think about churn problems, in almost all cases, they amount back down to problems with product market fit. Um, you know, th- there's been a failure to 
um, deliver on whatever the promise was that people signed up for your product with in the first place. And in a lot of cases, that is because uh, where the intersection of their needs and your offering has been created, the, the, the overlap there just isn't high enough to create the kind of value that they need to, to justify the expense. Um, and, you know, in potentially competitive situations, there's, there's another option out there that they think might um, or that is able to make that ROI calculation a little better. Um, but at the end of the day, building something that is a force multiplier for your clients and that creates value for them is the number one hands down thing you can do to reduce churn uh, and to increase the size of the accounts that you have. So when we think about partnerships through that lens, the question is how can a partnership actually increase product market fit? And the answer is really fascinating because it works on both sides. It works in terms of helping on the product side and on the market side. Um, on the product side, it basically allows your product to become more sticky by hooking it into the fact that they're using other products. Um, so, you know, you can imagine uh, if you had a partnership with just a, you know, maybe example of a company, everybody knows Slack. Uh, so, you know, it's one thing to have a product that creates a lot of value for your customers. It's another thing to have those customers also inside of the context of Slack be running a Slack integration or Slack bot that allows them to interact with your product and extract value from it in that environment. Um, you know, when, when you have that kind of integration, it not only makes your product more valuable because it's, it's where your users already are, but it also makes Slack's product more valuable because inside the context of that environment, it's yet another way that people are extracting value through Slack. So um, inherently by doing that and by having an integration like that one, both sides are benefiting because it means that if someone stops using Slack, then they're going to miss out on a way they're getting value from your product. And if someone stops using your product, they're going to miss out on one of the ways they're getting value through Slack. And what happens is you get this rising tide that kind of lifts all ships. Um, you know, to, to mix metaphors, you get a one plus one equals three situation where it is this bi-directional value creation that is really profound in nature and that just makes products more valuable and more sticky. Um, so anyway, that, that's the product side of the product market fit, right? And it's really... Yeah. Um, uh, kind of core to how retention gets driven through collaboration and partnerships. On the market side, you have this opportunity to actually do business development and have the people that are out in your revenue funnel. So that means your salespeople, your customer success people, your account managers, even your marketers be enabled by the existence of partnerships as well. And where that comes into play is in the, the motions that these people actually go through in the process of winning deals and also, you know, to address churn, uh, kind of focusing on account management and, and growing accounts. So with the help of a tool like Crossbeam, for example, suddenly your teams are able to know, okay, we've built this tech integration. We know that it's valuable and that it makes each other's products more sticky. But how do we know that everybody who could be using it is using it? Like you can look at your product data and know that 50 people have the, uh, the Slack bot installed or whatever. What you don't know is whether or not there's another 500 people out there that already use both of the products, but just don't have that integration hooked up. Um, and historically, there's no way to figure out that overlap without oversharing. Like one side or the other has to give up their whole customer list in order for the other side to do math um, and find their overlapping customers. But with something like a crossbeam sitting in the middle, almost acting like an escrow service for data, you can answer that question, 
how many customers do we have in common and who are they without needing to worry about the rest of your customer list making it through to the other side. Um, and that could be a tool that gets used by folks that are trying to do account management to you know, drive the install of different integrations to make the product more sticky, um, to basically place yourself in that ecosystem where that value that we talked about on the product side actually gets realized. So what's, what's cool about partnerships is really they make products more valuable and they make markets more actionable and they unlock new motions for your sellers and your retainers to go and take. And that I think makes it, it uniquely powerful uh, in the world of just making your revenue grow. Yeah, I love uh, so much of what you said now. And maybe we can start to unpack a bit of it. Uh, so the first part, I think, which is really interesting, sort of was like the concept of product market fit and uh, how to sort of uh, strengthen that product market fit you have. And I think one of the interesting things as well that you were touching on is uh, unlocking and enabling multiple new use cases for your product or service by making having a power up of that sort of one plus one equals uh, three. And I think this is something as well that's, heavily undervalued I think when it comes to churn and retention of really like it's one of the most powerful levers as well when you can is making and unlocking new use cases because if you have a company or a user using your service in multiple different ways they become more and more reliant on you for the service and you gave the example of Slack and I think ultimately every business out there today is making Slack more powerful when you think about the number of uh, partnerships and integrations that are being built there. Uh, I found that very, very interesting. And then the second part was the market side as well. I think that's also a, a very important thing. And I think one thing you said, which was key, was not only like where is the overlap, but who are these uh, customers that overlap? Because that can also be a powerful indicator to understand, okay, is this something we should really be building? Do these people fit into our ideal customer profile that we have this overlap with? And then if yes, I mean, that should be a highly prioritized integration that we start working on. Um, yeah. I'll, uh, it, it, another example maybe that might just really resonate given the, the rest of our conversation is if you think about two companies uh, like Stitch and Looker, for example, um, as, as partners. So you think about what Stitch does, helps the data get where it needs to be. You think about what Looker does, sits on top of that data and provides the ability to analyze it. The cool thing about Stitch is uh, that product market fit is very real, right? Because if you get rid of Stitch, other things break. Like if you remove Stitch, if you churned off of Stitch, but it was the thing putting data in your data warehouse, all of a sudden Looker, which is sitting on top of your data warehouse, doesn't have fresh data anymore. Um, and that's like the embodiment of, right? Like making something so sticky that it cannot possibly be removed is that it's in the value chain. It's actually in that best in class stack such that other products depend on it and it depends on other products. And it was almost impossible for people to remove. Um, and then on the market side, what we saw was, you know, Looker, which is this wildly successful business intelligence company, would go out and would be selling deals. And sometimes their potential customers didn't have the right data in their data warehouse yet. So part of them actually closing a deal meant figuring out how to help them get the right data there. And lo and behold, a great option for them was to introduce them to the team at Stitch uh, and to say, hey, Stitch will solve this problem for you. So you kind of open up this co-selling motion, this co-selling channel between these companies that ostensibly don't even have a direct tech integration to each other. They both just kind of have the middle mouse, the, the warehouse as the middleman. Yeah. Um, but you get this real embodiment of what I'm talking about in that, in that case. Absolutely. The one empowers the other uh, to get the job done. Uh, I think it's also very, very interesting uh, from that perspective and sort of like what you're mentioning now is that, and I think this is definitely a theme that's come up on the show. Like when speaking to people that, 
really churn wasn't such a big issue. It would tended to be those products or services where really it was a vital part of a workflow that was very, very difficult to be removed. So like in the case of Stitch, as you mentioned, like if you remove Stitch, things start to break. Um, whereas on the flip side, when we think about something like maybe like RJ Metrics, is that you could remove RJ Metrics and replace it with something else and then the switching cost wouldn't be as high and things wouldn't necessarily break. You might have uh, less information, but it's not doesn't mean that you don't have information. So um, how much of this do you see with customers as well? Like the example that you gave now uh, of Stitch and Looker, like with your platform that you're building now with Crossbeam, like do you see that there's this power dynamic uh, quite a bit in partnerships where the one is really uh, feeding the other? And uh, do you sort of see this as a way as a bargaining chip for companies? Yeah, it's it's interesting because you can obviously name cases where you've got a partnership and one party is significantly bigger than the other. Um, but I would actually say in the majority of our main use cases for customers, um, that value creation is, is really truly bi-directional. And I, I think the reason that it works is because in the case of a big company helping a smaller company, the value is self-evident, right? The big company commands a lot of uh, power and attention and influence and network in their ecosystem and them bestowing some introductions or collaboration on a smaller company is uh, a very easy thing for them to do and an extremely valuable thing for the smaller company. What happens in the opposite direction is not necessarily that that one small company can you know, really move the needle for the bigger one. But it's the fact that there are, in some cases, hundreds, if not thousands of small companies that in aggregate actually represent an extremely powerful and sizable contributor of value and opportunity back up to the big company. Um, so when you, when you look at companies like Salesforce or like HubSpot or like Slack, and you look at their app stores or their app ecosystems, what you see is a really, really long tail uh, of companies that in a lot of cases, you know, look at the bottom 50% of the companies in there and you've probably never heard of any of them, but they're all real uh, and they all make those products, be they Slack, HubSpot or Salesforce, more valuable and more sticky because when these, these little specific tools get installed, it means that the place where people are going to interact with them is actually those core platforms. Um, and because of that, the big players, the Slacks, HubSpots and Salesforce of the world, they love those ecosystems. They cultivate them, they invest in them. Um, they back these developers that are working to build these integrations because they know uh, the impact that it has on churn and retention. Um, so the, the value is really bi-directional. The shape is different. Yeah, and I think this is, touches on a little bit about uh, the blog post uh, that I mentioned earlier in the show. So for the listeners, it's something I think you can find it on Twitter, on Bob's account at the moment. And it's, it's titled My 2.6 Billion uh, Ecosystem Fail and RJ Metrics Postmortem. Uh, and I think like the central of the topic is all around it was ecosystem is everything. Uh, do you want to talk us through a little bit about sort of why you believed you made this mistake and uh, how ecosystem is everything? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the root of the reason RJ metrics didn't sell for $2.6 billion, but our largest competitor did, uh, which is kind of the thesis of the article. Um, the biggest input to that, after having some time and some distance to look at it, is how extremely closed off we were to letting the value that we created flow into other systems and make other products more valuable. 
Um, I think that we were we were not a hub where data kind of you know flowed in and flowed out and everybody benefited like what we've been talking about in the rest of this episode. We were more like a terminal. Um, we kind of you know we pulled in your data from various sources. We would analyze it for you, but it was kind of like where your data went to die. You know, you got our charts out, and that was it. Uh, that was your consumption point. And because of that, there just weren't that many other people outside of the people that you know collected paychecks from us and were on our team who were motivated to get our product in the hands of uh, their customers and their ecosystem. The fact that somebody used RJ Metrics didn't really help anybody except RJ Metrics and the customers of RJ Metrics. And because of that we basically shut down this entire potential growth avenue, which was a, a, a big universe of partners that could have been a larger force multiplier and, and megaphone for our messaging than anything we ever could have done internally. Um, but I think it was something that was just not, not part of the picture. It was because we took way too big of a bite on the technology side and tried to own too much of that technology stack as opposed to playing nicely with other players um, where the data could have, uh, you know, lived or moved or, or been held. Um, so, uh, if you look at Looker, on the contrary, um, you know, Looker decided to take on a very specific part of that stack. In, in some ways, Looker was one third of the product that RJ Metrics was from a comprehensiveness standpoint because they didn't bother trying to build their own data pipelines. They didn't bother trying to build their own data warehouse. They just were really, really good at business intelligence. Um, yeah. And they partnered with everybody for, for everything else. And what that meant was two things. One, they built a better business intelligence product than we did because they could focus all their energy on it. And two, they had an army of other companies, uh, in addition to channel sellers and resellers and system integrators and other folks who were out there beating the drum saying, Looker is amazing. Um, and that provides this ability to scale exponentially that we just never tapped into. And I think those things really compounded you know, again, it's the product market fit thing, right? They, they had a far better and wider product market fit because the product was better and because the market was more able to disseminate that product due to the, their work in the ecosystem. Um, so, you know, the, when I say that it was a uh, kind of an ecosystem fail on our part, that's why. Um, and then when we got to Stitch is when our eyes got opened to really how real that was because ironically Stitch, our next company was a big Looker partner. Uh, Looker went from being our worst enemy to our best friend pretty much overnight, uh, because we were, we were playing a different game. And when yeah. we played that game, uh, you know, we grew faster, uh, we got more sleep at night and you know, we ended up having a much more lucrative outcome. Um, so that was, that was the lesson learned. I think it definitely, it feels like it's a trend of the time as well. Like if we think about the sort of this concept of world gardens with ad networks now, like uh, getting big kickback and backlash and uh, people wanting to have a little bit more control over their data and not being locked into sort of a specific system. And um, in the case of maybe RJ Metrics is you were sort of locked in uh, to the system with the data and uh, with the opposite, Looker being able to have the flexibility to plug and play and uh, pull in data from everywhere, people are really looking now for this not to be tied in, not to be held down and to have more control over their data ultimately of how they use it and how they store it. So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting one. So next up then, I, it's a question I ask everyone on the show and I'd love to have your input on it as well is um, let's have a hypothetical scenario now that you, you start a new role, a new job at a company and churner retention is not doing well at all. Um, and you've been tasked now to turn things around for the company. Uh, you've been given three months and they want to see results. 
what would be some of the first things you would do within those first 90 days? Yeah, so um, my guess would be that if it has not historically been a priority that there's a lack of data uh, readily available to, to really paint a little bit more of a story around what's going on. And I think a lot of people with churn, when they think about data, they think about, you know, let's, let's build a dashboard or do a cohort analysis or just look at like the numbers. But I actually think like the more time goes by, the more it really rings true for me that churn issues again are, are issues that are way more fundamental. They're way more at the product market fit level. They almost feed up from like the core vision and positioning of the company. And I think the data that can help support that or help build a case around what to do about it is much, uh, much less structured in a lot of cases than just looking at a bunch of transactions and trying to do a cohort analysis of you know who's churning off from what cohorts. So honestly, my answer would be get on the phone with as many customers as possible, happy ones, unhappy ones, ones that have churned. And if possible, try and scale that data collection uh, in the form of a, a you know, current and past customer survey um, and create some incentives around collecting that data. Uh, and I think really, what you would try to do there is collect a large enough number of data points that you can really put some trend lines together, uh, kind of doing like the five whys style of questioning, right? Uh, like, okay, why did you churn? Uh, well, we went to a competitor. Well, why'd you go to a competitor? Uh, well, we thought they would give us more value. Well, why were you getting more value? Because uh, they had this feature that you don't. Well, why is that feature important to you? And you keep digging down. And ultimately, I think you do unavoidably make your way down to uh, either a product issue or a market issue. Uh, and market issues could be things like pricing being way out of whack um, or something about the positioning or who you're selling to um, or some execution failure on, on the part of the delivery team. But more often than not, it's a product issue. Uh, and what you'll actually get down to is the fact that um, you know there's confidence was lost or faith was lost in the product for some reason. And they didn't believe that they could get out of uh, the set of issues that they were in. And they thought the best course was to just go elsewhere or to have nothing at all. Um, so uh, long-winded answer. Uh, I don't know if this was supposed to be the lightning round, but I think what I would go do is collect data and I would just talk to as many customers as humanly possible. Yep. Uh, and I think what you're saying now is you're going back to sort of the core of it um, and really challenging, like, does this company have product market fit yet? And either it's a problem with product or it's a problem with the market. I find it very interesting as well um, that you touch on the market as well, uh, coming being like a very heavily uh, data-driven background as well uh, in your past uh, building these different startups. But really always it comes down to the very beginning. It was like, do you have that product market fit? And potentially there's a problem with your positioning. People are not understanding what your product actually is, maybe overselling it and under-delivering. Like, or, or like you said on the product side, like really lacking that confidence or lost it somewhere along the way or not really fulfilling the use case that they intended to. Yeah, I, or selling into the wrong market too. I mean, we learned this at RJ Metrics where we initially, we were kind of trying to sell to like anybody who had a website could be an RJ Metrics customer. And yeah. our churn was really bad, but when we did an analysis of our churn by vertical, we found that in e-commerce, it wasn't bad at all. It was actually a really healthy business we had going in e-commerce. But we were also trying to sell to SaaS companies and gaming companies and publishers and ed tech companies and all kinds of other stuff. And the churn was brutal in those verticals. So by the time we, we got acquired at Argent, we had almost entirely narrowed the scope of the business into e-commerce. And it made a pretty drastic impact on the reliability of our revenue. Um, and I think it's 
a main part of the reason why we were such an attractive target for Magenta, uh, which is obviously an e-commerce only player. Yeah. And I think that's actually a very, very interesting point. I think it's something that uh, is not looked at enough in the sense that if somebody looks at, okay, we have a churn problem um, and they're just looking at the high level, like aggregated data and yes, okay, if you're looking at the numbers like that, you can say that you have a churn problem, but sometimes more often than not, if you really start to look down and break down your different segments and try and understand who are these customers and what does our successful cohorts look like, you can definitely sort of be able to pick up either an industry or a specific demographic or, or some customer traits that can then go help you out and find more of those customers. What led you to the sort of uh, point where you said, okay, let's sort of double down on e-commerce? Like what was the research or what was the, the process look like when, in order to make that decision? Yeah, a lot of kind of my answer to the last question came into play here where it's one thing to just look at, okay, churn by vertical, right? Um, and that's something you can do in a dashboard without talking to humans. It's another thing when you go a level deeper and you, you get to ask the question of why did you churn? And I think what we saw was, not just that the churn rates were higher in those other verticals, but that the reasons for churning were different. Um, and in a lot of cases, what was happening is that people were just leaving, not just RJ metrics because they didn't like the product or didn't get value, but because they had a mental shift in how they wanted to solve this problem. Like a fundamental thing where even if RJ metrics was a perfect product that knocked it out of the park and did everything we said we were going to do for them, they still would have left because they didn't want a big monolithic solution. They wanted to buy a data pipeline product, a data warehouse and a business intelligence tool and stitch them together themselves. And in that case, we were just not compatible with the market that we were in. I think for, for B2B SaaS companies that we were selling into, this was really probably the most pronounced. Um, the reasons people were leaving were not reasons that we could fix without basically starting an entirely new company, which uh, ironically is pretty much what we did uh, with, with Stitch. But, um, but for that vertical, I think we just had to shut it down because there was no, there was no path to success. Whereas people that were churning into e-commerce, they might've churned because they wish we had, they were migrating to a new shopping cart and they wish we had an integration for it, or they found themselves doing more work uh, in Excel than in RJ. And we built some Excel like features and we could address it. Like th those are iterable incremental products, uh, fixes that can make things better. But in those other verticals, the, the, the reasons for churning were so existentially deep that they were unaddressable. And, and that's why we left those verticals. That's very interesting. And it touched on something as well, similar to what we've previously discussed. Is it also that people maybe in the beginning when they come to you to solve a specific problem, um, your product might meet that need to begin with, but then as they start to understand the problem better and understand their business better, they start to realize that potentially this product or service is not what I was actually looking for and there are other alternatives. Like, was this something that you also saw at RJ Metrics where people would initially come to, they were meeting their needs, but then as maybe they became a little bit more sophisticated or they had gained a great understanding of what they were actually looking for, um, then that was a point in time where uh, you might've initially had that product market fit, but that market product market fit definition started to change as well. Yeah, I think this comes up, it, it did happen in RJ and I would say it came up probably the most when the idea of data and big data was really at like the peak of the hype cycle. Um, so it, there was a point in time there where just the word of the day was data and anybody who is in a, you know, in a business that isn't focused on their data uh, is missing out. And obviously that's become kind of conventional wisdom today, but there was a point where there was hype around it. Like in the way that like blockchain and AI are kind of the, the buzzwords of the day, you know, at the moment, um, 
it was big data uh, and data that that kind of captured that zeitgeist, you know, in that era, you know, 2012 to 2014-ish. So uh, that was great for us because we did data, uh, kind of broadly stated, um, if a company at large felt like I got to get in on this data thing or I am failing because I'm not doing something in the world of data, we were definitely a way to check that box. But and we got a lot of leads that just came to us and said, my boss told me we need to be doing more with data. So here I am. Um, and, but the problem was those people, while we could get them on board and close deals and collect some dollars from them, they churned at an inordinately high rate uh, because once we gave them the data, which was exactly what we pitched them, exactly told them we were going to do, they had this now what question because they had not operationalized their company in a way that they could actually use the data to do anything you know, to make decisions, to enact actions, to change behaviors, to influence workflows. They didn't do any of that. They just went on, the, you know, a, a, a great hunt to invest some money in something adjacent to data. And when data wasn't the hot buzzword anymore, they weren't buying our product anymore. Um, and the onus really fell on us to make sure that they could operationalize our outputs, which was kind of different than what our core product was, which was kind of like, we're going to give you the answers to your questions and then you've got to go you kind of go run your own business with that information. Um, and it was a challenge for real. Um, and just kind of a scope creep of what our responsibility was. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this come, came up with an episode with Eleanor Dorfman uh, at Segment, which I think is maybe a competitor to Stitch in some ways. But they also realized similarly that that was a challenge for them. And they actually added friction to the onboarding process to ensure that the business sort of goals were aligned. They had a good understanding of what they were trying to achieve before they actually went out starting to implement and uh, roll out a tool or service. So, yeah, they're a, they're a very smart company. Uh, we're big fans of those, uh, those folks. Yeah. Cool. So uh, you've done this now a few times, uh, built a couple of very successful companies, and now you're on to Crossbeam. What would be one piece of advice that you would give to an entrepreneur starting out now when it comes to sort of building a company that's going to retain customers? Yeah, I think it really is um, the old like know thy customer adage um, and get in the room with them, spend time, uh, you know, even when it feels like you know what they're going to say, I guarantee you can have you know a 30 minute jam session with them and you'll come out of there with things that that were not on your mind before um and i think like really customer driven development customer influence roadmap um no matter how strong your vision is uh there's nuance there that i think without customer empathy you're you're gonna you're gonna stumble um so that's that's rule number one for me why because your customers ultimately are the be all end all of whether or not they get retained on your platform. And the things that are on their minds are the things that are potentially connected to all of the decision making triggers that might exist for them, whether it is meeting a budget for that quarter, hitting a goal for that quarter, some other abstract emotional issue or political issue that's going on. Um, and having visibility into that, not just in individual accounts, but being able to spot trends uh, that can allow you to speak the language that creates empathy with those users um, it is just really critical to marrying the product and the market sides um, of that critical product market fit stuff. So I think you can build the best product in the world, but if you don't know that customer, you don't know that market, and you're not going to be able to position that product in a way uh, that is going to be most conducive to having them stick around. 
Yeah, I was going to continue with another three whys to get to the very bottom, but I think you nailed it. <laughs> oh, man, that was a hoisted by my own petard. Uh, yeah, cool. So, um, Bob, do you have anything you want, last things you want to leave the audience with? Like, it's been a pleasure having you today, but is there anything lost that you'd like to leave them with? How can they keep up to speed with what you're doing? Or Yeah, I think uh, definitely check out getcrossbeam.com, learn more about what we're up to. It's it's a very new uh, type of technology. There, there's not really been anything like it before. And, uh, you know, we definitely want to raise awareness of it. And um, you know, uh, come on, sign up. You can get a free account, kick the tires. Uh, that's kind of rule number one. And uh, stay in touch with our content. Head over to the blog, sign up for the newsletter. We're doing a lot uh, on all these subjects on a regular basis, and we try to put out really high quality stuff. So um, we promise not to junk up your inbox. We uh, uh, love talking about this stuff and would love to engage with everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today. It's been a pleasure having you. And for those listening as well, like as Bob mentioned, make sure to get and check out getcrossbeam.com. A lot of exciting things happening there. And just thanks a lot for joining. Thank you. Great to be here. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.